This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We have a wonderful show today here as we are entering further into this season of Advent, preparing ourselves for the the celebration of Christmas. And one of the ways that we do that is to to meditate on what it means for Christ, the the God-man, God becoming man for the sake of reconciling us, this this beautiful mystery of incarnation that we're going to celebrate at Christmas. And as we do that, we have to ask ourselves maybe some questions about the essential nature of who God is and and what it means for God to come to us in the incarnation. Uh, I, I wanted to bring up a specific book that I laid my hands on maybe a couple of years ago. It came out in 2020. It's available on Erdman's Press. It's called The Love That Is God, An Invitation to the Christian Faith. It's written by Fritz Bauerschmidt, who's a professor of theology at Loyola University in Maryland and a permanent deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore assigned at the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen. Fritz, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So as we're Coming into this time of meditating on the incarnation and thinking about what it really means beyond the presence and the Christmas songs and the eggnog and whatever else, um, the the story of the incarnation is one that should be uh, revolutionary and, and kind of shake our understanding of the world and and be radically controversial, at least in the time that it was first presented, but it's become maybe a little bit too tame. And and in that tameness, we've maybe glossed over or forgotten some of the edge that, that this story of incarnation has for us. And I think while we're doing that, while we're kind of maybe glossing over it or simplifying it, we also have a culture that is uh, that, that's no longer inundated by that story. We're not telling the story maybe well anymore to ourselves, and the culture isn't telling the story at all, primarily. Um, in the opening of this book, you talk about Christopher Hitchens, who was a, a very famous atheist. And uh, in it, he says um, that God is love, that statement that we hear so often, is just white noise that has become, it's a phrase that gets thrown out. It's, it's a proverb or a triviality. Um, and I think that the primary reason that he would say that, and I think that you would agree is that we have expressed it without explaining it. So I, I wonder if you could maybe give us that first thought that drove you to write this book and then maybe help us to unpack what does it mean as we talk about the incarnation, as we talk about God, coming in Christ, that, that God is love. Yeah, I, um, I guess I have a, a couple of initial thoughts. I mean, I think I tend to teach two kinds of students, uh, those who have had the misfortune of growing up with no knowledge of the Christian faith and those who've had the misfortune of growing up with trivial knowledge of the Christian faith. Uh, I just recently, in an introductory theology class, finished teaching The Life of St. Francis by, by Bonaventure. And it became pretty clear to me that many of the students found Francis not only strange, because he's undeniably strange, but they found him sort of repellent. 
And I think particularly those who had been sort of inoculated by some exposure, a trivialized exposure to the Christian faith, found him particularly repellent because their understanding of the Christian faith is that, well, Jesus did something so that we don't have to do anything. Mm. Um, and Francis really uh, challenges that view, of course. I mean, of course, he thinks Christ did everything for him. Uh, but he also felt called to a kind of a radical response, right? Yeah. So I think it's a, probably an indictment of contemporary Christianity that the students who have some exposure to Christianity have no better framework for understanding someone like Francis of Assisi than somebody who has no exposure to the Christian faith. And right. in fact, they might even be in a worse position uh, to understand yeah. what Francis of Assisi is about than someone for whom, well, Francis is a little bit like that burning bush that Moses comes across, you know, kind of gets your attention. Uh, for those with no Christian background, Francis is at least weird enough that he gets your attention. Uh, but those who've been inoculated by a, by a, a uh, I don't know, thinned out version of Christianity seem even more uh, immune to the, uh, the 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 figure of someone like Francis of Assisi. Yeah, Christian Smith coined a term several years back. Uh, moral therapeutic deism right that, that god is there somewhere out there as a way for me to feel better about myself yeah and certainly i think there's nothing like exposing students to scripture and figures in the christian tradition and some of the best contemporary theological writing to make them realize that whatever that god is that they or have been believing in, it does not seem to line up very well with the God of Scripture and tradition and really what the Church calls us to today. So this brings up a question for me, um, because you don't know what you don't know. So let's say that we have a person who has a, a picture of of what it means for God to be love and what it means for, for God to be in relationship with us and what it means for us to be Christian, how would they go about testing those assumptions to see if the idea that they have been raised with and that they have, have really grown as, as identity in uh, is one that actually reflects traditional Christian faith? Well, I mean, I suppose an encounter with scripture, of course, is, is a starting point, the starting point. Um, and uh, scripture, of course, I think is best interpreted by the saints, right? And they interpret it in their lives. Um, but I also think, I always have to remind myself, I'm dealing with, in my teaching, for the most part, very young people. And that faith they have really is a kind of a child's faith. I mean, I don't want to be dismissive of them. I mean, some of them will surprise me with the depth of their their faith and their theological insight. But but for many of them, what they have is basically a child's faith. And the faith that they have sort of inherited uh, has not yet kind of run up against the hard stuff of life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's another way to test the authenticity of one's faith, test the conformity of that faith, 
faith to the best of Christianity, is it a faith that can actually carry you through the horrific stuff that life throws at many, many people? Um, and so I always have to, I always have to remind myself that, uh, the, the students I'm teaching for the most part, God's just beginning to work with them. Mm-hmm. And so I try and and not be too hard on them, but I also, as a part of that, you also have to recognize who you're talking to, right? You're not you're talking to people who, at least many of them, uh, have not yet had to confront some of the really hard things in life. I'm often surprised I, the difference between students I will teach in an intro to, to theology course, who are for the most part 18, 19 years old. And just a few years later, when I teach them and they're 21 and 22, a lot happens in those years. And uh, I think a, a lot of what happens is just life. And they begin to look for a faith that can actually sustain them through their lives. Bringing this back to the season of Advent, the readings that the church gives us here in these four weeks leading up to, uh, to the celebration of Christmas— are very much saturated with the difficulties of life, right? You've got the the prophetic words from uh, most commonly from uh, the prophet Isaiah, uh, and then you have a number of eschatological uh, prophecies, even in the time of of Christ from the Gospels. Then leading up to this this idea of there is injustice in the world, and justice is going to to rise on you. Uh, like the noonday sun, right? So we have this um, kind of framework being laid out for us by the readings of Scripture of a faith that that will sustain in the midst of hard times by kind of piling up these hard times right before we get to the celebration of incarnation, of, of love, and we even have this hymn, Love Comes Down at Christmas, uh, that, that basically is telling the story of incarnation. One of our difficulties, I would say, in this Christianity that we have grown up around that may have simplified things is uh, maybe a, a Hallmark Channel version of love, right? That there's this um, sweet and sappy thing that comes and makes us all feel uh, emotional. And, and so I wonder if you, let's come back to that idea of how do we properly define love so that we can understand what it means when we say to ourselves or to our neighbor that God is love. Yeah, of course, as Pope uh, Benedict pointed out in his first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, which is, I like to say, the only book better than mine on the topic of God is love. I. <laughs> uh, he talks about what he calls the semantic range of love. You know, we use the word love for all sorts of things, right? You know, I love my country. I love my wife. I love pizza. I love the Baltimore Orioles. Um, we, we use uh, the word love in, in a whole wide range of, of ways. And these ways of using it aren't completely disconnected from each other, but at the same time, they're not completely identical, right? And so I think that there's a, a specificity to what we mean when we say God is love, right? That that can't simply be love in the sense in which I love the Baltimore Orioles or pizza or even my wife, though loving my wife might be a little bit closer uh, than loving pizza. Uh, And I think 
uh, and this is a point I make in the second chapter of the book, you know, we're told in the scriptures how we should understand the love that is God. It's that, you know, no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that in, you know, in this, we know God's love, that Christ, while we were still sinners, laid down his life for us. Um, and the cross is, without a doubt, the antidote to sappy, sentimental notions of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think, I don't know if you can, in our cultural context, I don't know if you can lead with the cross, but you got to get there pretty soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, people are going to fall into the kind of vacuous form of Christianity that Christian Smith and others have identified, you know, with the term moral therapeutic deism. Yeah. With the title, you bring up another maybe misconception that we have. The title, The Love That Is God, uh, kind of flips that script on the phrase, God is love, because I think sometimes we think of that phrase in the same way that we would think of pizza is good, right? That there's a modifier, it modifies uh, or expounds or, or serves as an adjective of who God is, rather than being the definition, right? That there is something essential to the nature. Um, and you've done it just like with an equation. You couldn't say good is pizza, right? Right. Or the good that is pizza, but there is this interchangeability between God and love more than just a modification or a descriptor. Yeah, I tend to think one of the problems that I encounter with people trying to think about God is they think of God as just some sort of kind of giant entity, like a really powerful space alien, um, like us, but just bigger and more powerful, right? Um, And uh, this being, in addition to believing that this being exists, you might also believe that this being is is love or loving, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I try and flip the the equation is to say, no, you have to think of God as essentially loving, right? Uh, otherwise, you've just got an idol, and you are then set up for a transactional relationship with this idol, right? You're trying to you know, persuade this idol to be loving, right? Um, And in some ways, this is maybe the opposite of the moral therapeutic deism, right? In moral therapeutic deism, well, of course, it never enters your mind that God could ever ask you for anything, that God could ever expect anything from you, that you might need to do something to live in the, the presence of this God. But on the other hand, I think you can also think of God as simply uh, being defined by his power over you, right? And that somehow uh, you've got to enter into a kind of a bargaining with God in order to get God to be loving, right? And so in some ways, that's the opposite of moral therapeutic deism. And somehow at the same time, people seem to have both of these conceptions within their brains at the same time. I mean, they're not, even though they're logically maybe mutually exclusive, as people live their lives, they they tend to, I think, vacillate between a God who's just like a big, you know, comfort object and a God who they have to bargain with in order to gain something that they want. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we see this, you know, in, in scripture, there's kind of this anthropomorphizing of, of God, uh, with, with, you know, God repenting uh, of, of certain thoughts or changing his mind about certain things. Uh, and yet the, the scholastics would talk about God as uh, using the phrase a simple, meaning that there, God is not a uh, constitutive of parts, but God is just the one thing and, and really leaning into that God being unchanging. And if you think about God as being this uh, impassable, unchangeable love, then it's not about me bargaining with God to get what I want out of him because God is unmovable. He is what he is. Uh, and then the only thing that is maybe differential is the way that I relate to him. Right. And and I think maybe uh, keeping the, that sort of metaphysical principle in mind, I always think scholastic metaphysics often does have some cash value, as William James would have put it. Uh, though he didn't think that was true of scholastic metaphysics. But uh, it seems to me what the moral therapeutic deism and the transactional view of God have in common is that neither one really requires me to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the moral therapeutic deism, you know, we're, we're, everything's just hunky-dory, right? Uh, in the transactional approach, it's like, well, I'm trying to persuade God to change, Right. And, and both of these seem to be, to me, to be strategies of evasion uh, by which we avoid the thought that if I am not experiencing God's love, then I've got to move. Mm-hmm. I've, got to, I've got to draw near to God uh, because the love, you know, God is, as it were, radiating that love. And if I am not sensing it, I'm the one who needs to undergo transformation. Now this can that can degenerate into a kind of a, 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 a unhealthy uh, spiritual perfectionism, right? Um, that there is some real sense in which, yes, I've got to move, but what I've got to do is let God draw me toward God. Um, not that I've got to chart out some kind of itinerary that I'm going to follow. Uh, in fact, I have to give up my itinerary so that God can can draw me along the paths that God chooses. Yeah. Uh, in some, I think back to the books from um, Jacques Philippe, who's, a, 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 I think, a Dominican, but from, uh, from France. And one of his books um, starts out saying, you just need to realize that you can do nothing apart from God. And then and 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 not worry about it, right? You're not going to succeed at these things that you're thinking about, and that's okay, right? We we entrust ourselves to God, and then it becomes this kind of uh, there is our action, but our action is dependent upon our is dependent upon uh, His goodness. So there, it is this both and, which of course we Catholics like to live in that tension. Yeah, I I think a basic principle for me of the spiritual life is your spiritual life is always going to be a catastrophic failure. Um, (laughs) And uh, I think if you start with that presupposition, then God can actually do something with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And but of course, I mean, I experience it in myself. I, I know other people experience it, this this sense of frustration. You know, I'm not making spiritual progress. 
And I just think those kinds of thoughts are, are from the evil one. You know, I think, uh, yes, of course, you have to ask, you know, in the Ignatian tradition, you know, you have to ask yourself, what have I done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? Those are important questions to ask yourself in the spiritual life. But you also have to ask yourself, well, what has Christ done for me? What is Christ doing for me? What will Christ do for me? Um, and in some ways, take yourself out of the center of your own spiritual life mm-hmm. and let Christ be there, right? Now, that's an immensely difficult thing to do. Uh, Thomas Merton, I think it's at the conclusion of his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, talks about how we have to forget ourselves on purpose. And I love that phrase because I think it captures the, the paradoxical nature, the idea that, yes, I've got to make an effort to stop making an effort. Right. I've got to thoughtfully forget myself. <laughs> um, and, uh, and when I do that, then suddenly my spiritual life isn't about my spiritual life. It's about the life of the spirit in me. And that's something quite different. Well, this is to put that same idea in in biblical language. This is the, uh, I have died and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That realization, I think part of this question of entering into this spiritual life of love is recognizing the, the twofold things. One, that, that I have to be engaged, but that my engagement in this is not dependent on my own ability. Right. And, and this is where I do think the analogy between God, the love that is God, and human love really can be informative because, you know, we talk about falling into love, not jumping into love, right? We talk about uh, the sense in which the other is sort of calling, calling to me, right? Um, in fact, uh, I think it's in Dionysus the Areopagite, he derives, uh, I think it's a false etymology, but he, he derives uh, the word beauty from the word, the Greek word for call. And uh, uh, this idea of being enraptured by something that takes you out of yourself. And I think we experience this in, in human love. I mean, there's a sense in which I remember when my first child was born, um, looking at him and thinking, you know, I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, you're, you're, I am no longer at the center of my life. You're at the center of my life. Right. And I think at least by analogy, that's that's what understanding God's love for us is. Um, well, and to put it in that framework, uh, when we have that kind of love, we are more than willing and even eager to give up certain things that we used to have um, and, and things that used to bring us joy. So uh, here's this is a very uh, maybe small example. Uh, I, before I got married, uh, I had a video game console, right? I'm not going to say which one, cause that will date me way too much, uh, that I spent a good amount of time on. But, uh, uh one of the things that I did is, uh, I took that thing to a pawn shop and got rid of it right before my wedding, because I had different priorities now. And I, I had different ways that I wanted to spend my time because of the object of my love. Right. And, and even our human loves, you know, at least we don't want them to be transactional, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, I, mean, I wasn't 
thinking about, well, what am I going to gain, you know, from from my child being born? What, I, despite all, you know, Richard Dawkins and talk about selfish genes and things like that, so it may be an interesting way to think about evolution, but having selfish genes doesn't make us selfish beings, right? And I, I'm firmly convinced that you can't reduce parental love for, for a child to just simply some sort of unconscious desire to pass on your DNA. I don't, I think it's, it's a radically non-transactional relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think human beings ever had children in order that they could pass on their DNA or that they would have someone to take care of them in their old age or someone to work on the farm. Um, I think it's it's always been much more mysterious than that. Um, Coming back to this idea of love being God, the love that is God, um, that means then that any love that we experience and and live out is in some way a reflection of who God is and can unpack for us and reveal to us who God is just based on the fact that they are God and, and love are interchangeable. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of room to sort of reflect on the, the human experience of love as a way to come to understand God, but also as a way of recognizing that, yes, well, I, I suppose it would be what uh, Simone Weil would call implicit forms of the love of God, Right that uh, the the human love we see, the love of human beings for each other, but also the, the human love of beauty, um, that these are, are implicit forms of the love of God and are a sign that God is at work, even in places where it might seem highly unlikely that God is at work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think believing that God is love itself um, and that the love we can perceive in the world, even though sometimes it might be somewhat misdirected, is still a kind of an echo of that divine love that called the world into existence. I think it can give us a fairly capacious understanding of how God is at work in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often, I think often we have way too, we're tempted, particularly as the developed world grows more and more secular. We're tempted to just see it as this realm of pure darkness, right? And I think being able to see that even in misdirected human love, you're seeing some kind of echo of God and that it might give you some kind of toehold to begin to say to people, you know, you know this this love you feel for your child, you know this love you feel for great art or music or literature, you know, what is that grounded in? Is this, you know, is there something, is it leading you to something deeper? Is there a greater depth to it than you can account for? And I think that kind of gives you a little bit of a toehold, a little bit of a finger hold to, to open up the conversation with people. And I think that's much better than hitting people over the head with everything they're doing wrong, which is yeah. always a non-starter. We're talking today with Fritz Bauerschmidt, a deacon in the Archdiocese of Baltimore and professor of theology at Loyola University in Maryland. He's the author of The Love That Is God, available on Erdman's Publishing. Come be a part of our conversation throughout the week over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle as at step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. 
You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Fritz Bauerschmidt, professor of theology at Loyola University in Maryland and a permanent deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We're talking about uh, his book, The Love That Is God, an invitation to the Christian faith available on Erdman's publishers. We've spent the first segment here talking specifically about trying to come to this definition of love and unpacking it and looking at the the various temptations that we might have to maybe mislabel that or misunderstand that love that is God. Uh, I want to take this second part, and you mentioned it just as we were going to break, um, that talking about the love and using those seeds of faith that we find in culture and and taking that opportunity as a better way to to bring people to faith than telling them that they're doing wrong. Um, and this is kind of one of my soapboxes. Uh, maybe more poignantly now because of the division that we see and the, the rush that we have to define ourselves by difference rather than looking for those points of commonality. Uh, but we see a push for debate and argument and uh, apologetics as the sole means of evangelization, as if simply on the strength of our argument and our reason, uh, we can draw people uh, because they'll see that we're right. And then, of course, they'll want to be right and they'll they'll come to our side and they'll see things the right way. Um, and I think, that, um, by all means, I think that there's a place for apologetics, but I don't see it as either a primary or even a necessarily effective means of evangelization, because the point at which someone becomes interested in the arguments surrounding Christianity, that person has already reached the phase of curiosity. Uh, If we're looking at Sheree Waddell's uh, five stages of evangelism, that's one of the, the later stages. We've got to get to a place where there's even curiosity before the answers that we have to questions make any difference whatsoever. Uh, And so one of the things that I feel many of us have lost the art of is planting that curiosity of engendering the questions so that answers can be given. Uh, And you do that so beautifully in this book, um, starting with the definition of love, that God is love, going, as you said, in chapter two, to what it means for that love to be giving in a sacrificial way. And then you go on and hit some of the topics that we might be familiar with, that God calls us to friendship uh, and that our love that comes from us, going to that uh, uh, first John 4, 7, and 8, let us love Uh, love is of God and anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, Uh, and then calling us to community. But the primary feature of this book, as you go through each of these things, is it is first and foremost invitational and seeking bridges of communication and commonality 
rather than jumping to those points of distinction. So as much as I would love for you to talk even about using the book to to talk about this, I want to talk mainly about the method because I feel like the method is maybe foreign to us. The more uh, deep, the, the more deeply we get engaged with maybe the societal distinctions and, and uh, division. And I wonder if you might, by way of reminder, draw us back to that invitational way. Yeah, I was I was thinking about what you were saying about. Um you know, sort of maybe more traditional modes of apologetic, of apologetics and how, you know, we want to convince people we're right and then they'll want to join us because they'll want to be right too. And I think that does work for some people, but then what you you end up with is a bunch of people who are really excited about being right. And that's not going to draw more people in, right? Uh, I think uh, that... Um, and a willingness to acknowledge that you you yourself don't have all the answers. Um, I often tell my my students that uh, uh, in my in my introductory theology classes that many of them have grown up thinking the Bible, which most of them have not looked at, uh, must be a great big book of answers. And I tell them, no, no, it's a great big book of questions. Mm-hmm. And my my goal in this class is, you know, I hope you find answers to your questions, but I want to make sure you're asking the right questions, right? I want to, I want to make sure you have questions that are worth devoting your life to seeking the answer to. Um, and what I don't say to them, because young people are turned off by language that's too pious, I want them to have questions that are going to lead them to God. Um, so I think, uh, I remember, you know, this past Sunday in the, the gospel reading, I was reflecting with our uh, catechumens at the cathedral about the gospel, upcoming gospel reading. And, and the, the verse or the, the, the words that stuck out to me in that reading was when the master says, you know, be alert, mm-hmm. right? And how we go through life really in a kind of an anesthetized state. Um, and you know, we like kind. We like forms of religion that anesthetize us. We like forms of entertainment that anesthetize us. I think we like a politics that anesthetizes us. Um, and I think about a student I taught last year who came to see me in my office. He was his very first semester in college, and he was telling me he, you know, he was not doing super well in my class. He was doing okay, uh, but he came in to tell me like how. My class and his other classes in literature and philosophy, he said, he said, I feel like I feel like I've been asleep and I'm waking up. Um, of course, that's like a that's a great money quote. I mean, that's what you you live your life as a teacher to hear at least once. And that was the one time I've heard it. Uh, but I think this idea that what we want people to do is we don't want to give we don't want to make them convinced that they're right. I mean, there's a place, clearly, I, I believe in truth, and I think that God is truth, right? But I also think that our perception of that truth is, in this life, very limited. Um, and that what we really want people to do is to set out on a journey towards the ultimate truth of God. And for them to do that, you can't just have them think at the outset that they've found the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think they can they can believe that they've found the proper orientation, that they're heading in the right direction, that they're asking the right questions. But for most people, the prepackaged truth is going to it, it's not going to be very exciting, right? We need to present the Christian faith as an adventure, right? Uh, and that the that that Jesus Christ and that the the Holy Spirit are going to lead them on this great adventure of discovering the truth, um, and not not their truth. I mean, you don't want to fall into that trap. Oh, you're going to discover your truth. No, you're going to discover the truth, God's truth. But you're going to discover it in your way, in your time, at your pace, uh, in the places that you are going to go, um, and that that's the greatest adventure of all. And so I think that, and that's what young people are looking for, right? I mean. They know on some level that the anesthetized existence that they're being offered is is really not worth it. It's yeah. it's not worth your life. Um, but an adventure that's worth your life. Well, and as you go throughout the book, as you get toward the end, you begin talking about the the communal relationship that we have. That yes, we have this relationship with the divine, but we also have that relationship in community. And as I think about this pursuit of truth. Uh, I think of the way that throughout history, the church has added to her numbers. It's been when they see something in that community that stands out and is enticing to them. So there's been a lot of maybe desire and push for there to be a culture that reflects Christianity, that we can get a culture around us that that we have so uh, affected that it looks like us. Uh, and I, I, there's, there's benefit to that, but I think that there's also maybe temptation to, to achieve that with means that are not, um, not actually affecting the culture, but just using power to do so. And, and I look back to the early church and I look at the lives of the saints and I see them living in cultures that were opposed to them and it was in those cultures opposed to them that they were able to be successful in drawing people to the faith because they saw the distinction, they saw the difference, and they saw what Christianity had to offer in terms of uh, self-sacrifice for the, for the good of the community or even for the good of a culture that didn't want them to be that way. So even looking back to the way that Christians would, would rescue children that were exposed, uh, to the elements by the Romans and ad adopt them without ever changing the culture, they change the culture. Yeah. I, I mean, as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the middle ages, um, uh, I, I can feel the attraction and I, and I can actually see the, the, the real advantages of a culture that's just saturated with the Christian faith. Um, I lived for a couple of years in, in Belgium and, you know, really up until about the 1950s, early 60s, you know, Belgium was known in Europe as one of the most Catholic countries, uh, particularly the Flemish part. The Walloons were always slightly anti-clerical, but the Flemish were, were, were deeply and seemingly, seemingly sincerely Catholic. And, and that just all collapsed almost overnight, um, which is probably an indication that what seemed like a robust and healthy Catholic culture was in fact extraordinarily brittle. Mm -hmm. um, and 
as soon as you loosened up a little bit, the wheels just completely fell off the cart. But it's still true to this day in Belgium, as you as you walk around, the, the signs of that Catholic culture are still all around you. Um, you go to a city like Antwerp, and on every corner, it seems, there's a shrine to the Virgin Mary. Um, of course, now they're no longer places of devotion. They are just part of cultural heritage that the state keeps up because of their folkloric value, right? Um but I, I can see the attractions of living in a culture that is, you know, saturated with, with Christianity. Um, but being saturated with Christianity is not exactly the same thing as being saturated with the Christian faith. Right. Um, and as somebody who does spend a lot of time thinking about the Middle Ages, I'm, I'm keenly aware that not only were many of the people in the Middle Ages no more pious than people today, uh, there was plenty of impiety in the Middle Ages, but also that power often got exercised in the name of Christianity uh, in ways that I think most of us would find pretty, not just distasteful, but maybe downright sinful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, forced conversions of people, um, you know, people's lives ruined by you know, accusations of heresy, sometimes True accusations, sometimes not. Um, but when you know a heresy accusation is in your toolkit of ways of attacking your enemies, uh, people are going to use it, you yeah. know, whether justified or not. So, I I think there's a real danger in becoming unduly uh, nostalgic for that, you know, Christianity saturated culture. Um, I understand. I understand the attraction. I mean, you. Look, look around and you you think, well, wow, are, are my children going to grow up to have faith? I mean, look what they're constantly exposed to. I mean, are, am I going to retreat into some sort of enclave? Am I going to let them be exposed to this? this? How am I going to counterbalance it? It poses a whole set of problems, but we're not the first people to, to face those problems. Right. And we can learn from the past. Well, and learning from the past, going back to this this picture of the saints, uh, faith flourishes most when you have to struggle with it, right? If if you can just receive information and repeat the information and that be enough, then there's not actual true catechesis that's going on. There, there's this this need for there to be struggle in order for there to be growth. And that as we wrestle with these ideas over and against the things that we're faced with every day, uh, as we're invited into self-sacrifice when everything around us is encouraging us to embrace hedonism, then all of a sudden we can grow in that faith and it can take root and have strength that, w that won't fall over as soon as it's challenged. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. I mean, there are, there are days when I, do feel like saying, okay, I, I, I think I've had enough struggle. Um, I, I kind of like a little break here, God. Uh, but you know, God seems, um, God seems unpersuaded by my, uh, <laughs> by my pleas. Um, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, you know, teach in a department of theology at a Catholic university, but I would say that, you know, many, many, and I'm a, I'm a deacon at a, at a, Catholic cathedral, but many, many of my contacts are people who don't share my faith. Mm -hmm. um, and some of my closest friends don't share my faith. And there's a part of me, of course, 
uh, a big part of me that that wishes that all of them did. But I also find that I have to reckon with the fact that God is somehow at work in their lives as much as in mine, and that God has put me in their lives and them in my life for a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes it, you know, there's a kind of a sadness that there's aspects of my life that I can't share with people who I'm otherwise very, very close with, right? Because they don't share my faith. Um, it's like, you know, I love somebody who they don't love. And uh, you, of course, when you love someone, you want everyone you love to love that person. Yeah. And to have uh to, to to have close people, people close to me who I love who, you know, don't love God. Um, or maybe the God that they love is a God that seems radically different from the God that I love. Uh you know, that, that causes a certain amount of pain, a certain sense of disappointment. Um, but it's also, a, it's also a challenge, I think, to kind of broaden our understanding of how God might be at work. Yeah. The book is The Love That Is God, An Invitation to Christian Faith. This is a book that you need to pick up for yourself as a way to remind yourself of how to engage in this kind of evangelization, but it's also a book written from a perspective that you could easily put this in the hands of someone else uh, as as part of that invitation to Christian faith. The author's uh, Fritz Bauerschmidt. It's available on Erdman's uh, publications. Uh, Fritz, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, T.L. If you missed any part of my conversation with Fritz Bauerschmitz or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you can't get enough, well, I've got good news because there's more to this conversation. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available first to all those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we give them a whole bunch of extras. You can learn more by clicking the Patreon link there at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can also find some of those older extra segments which are available now to the general public. Go over, listen to some of those segments, and consider becoming a part of that support community. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, 
say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. That reading again comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, out of chapter 40. This may be my favorite Advent reading. If you were to ask me on a different day and I had a different passage in front of me, I might have a different answer, but just if you were to ask me without having something else in front of me, I would say, this is it. This passage where God is announcing in no uncertain terms his affection and his love for the people. So much so that he's saying to his prophet, and and when we think about prophets, we often think of the fire and brimstone message of, of impending doom. But here, God gives right in the middle of the book of Isaiah, God gives the prophet a different set of instructions. Go to the people. Uh, that previously you've been announcing judgment on, previously you have been warning, previously you have been uh, begging to do what's right, and go to them now and tell them of my love for them. Comfort them. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. That all of the difficulties she faces are going to be taken away, all of the the valleys are going to be filled up, and every mountain that's an obstacle is going to be made low, that everything is going to be even. And then say to her, Behold, your God comes with might, and he will tend you like a shepherd tends his flock, gathering them up with, with love and tenderness. And I, I tell you, for myself, as I go through the, the the difficulties of my own life. I, I have to speak this verse and remind even myself of God's tenderness. And meditating on that love that is God inflames my own heart with love in return. Which brings us to our reading from Church History, which comes from a discourse on the contemplation of God by William of St. Theory. Truly you alone are the Lord. Your dominion is our salvation, for to serve you is nothing else but to be saved by you. O Lord, salvation is your gift and your blessing is upon your people. What else is your salvation but receiving from you the gift of loving you or being loved by you? That, Lord, is why you will that the Son at your right hand, the man whom you made strong for yourself, should be called Jesus that is to say, Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. And there is no other in whom there is salvation. He taught us to love him by first loving us, even to death on the cross. By loving us and holding us so dear, he stirred us to love him who had first loved us to the end. And this is clearly the reason you first loved us so that we might love you. Not because you needed our love, but because we could not be what you created us to be except by loving you. In many ways and on various occasions, 
you spoke to our fathers through the prophets. Now, in these last days, you have spoken to us in the Son, your word. By him, the heavens were established, and all their powers came to be by the breath of his mouth. For you to speak thus in your Son was to bring out in the light of day how much and in what way you loved us. For you did not spare your own Son, but delivered him up for us all. He also loved us and gave himself up for us. This, Lord, is your word to us. This is your all-powerful message. While all things were in midnight silence, that is, were in the depths of error, he came from his royal throne, the stern conqueror of error and the gentle apostle of love. Everything he did and everything he said on earth, even enduring the insults, the spitting, the buffeting, the cross and the grave, all of this was actually you speaking to us in your Son, appealing to us by your love and stirring up our love for you. You know that this disposition could not be forced on men's hearts, my God. Since you created them, it must rather be elicited. And this for the further reason that there is no freedom where there is compulsion. And where freedom is lacking, so too is righteousness. You wanted us to love you then. We who could not with justice have been saved had we not loved you. Nor could we have loved you except by your gift. So, Lord, as the apostle of your love tells us, and as we have already said, you first loved us. You are the first to love all those who love you. Thus we hold you dear by the affection you have implanted in us. You are the one supremely good and ultimate goodness. Your love is your goodness, the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father and the Son. From the beginning of creation, it was He who hovered over the waters, that is, over the wavering minds of men offering himself to all, drawing all things to himself. By his inspiration and holy breath, by keeping us from harm and providing for our needs, he unites God to us and us to God. That reading comes from a discourse on the contemplation of God by William of St. Theory. And I invite and encourage you to spend some time this week on your own contemplating God, and specifically, contemplating and identifying the specific ways that God is expressing His love here and now to you. Perhaps spend some time contemplating the ways in which you can mirror and reflect and communicate that same love of God to those who are in your immediate sphere of influence. Let us prepare ourselves together contemplating the love of God to then come and celebrate the Incarnation here at the end of this Advent season. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to our conversation with Fritz Bauerschmidt. I encourage you, go pick up the book, The Love That Is God, available on Erdman's Publishing. Today's show is brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. 
Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.